This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible Line. You may be a first-time listener here at 88.7. And so for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions. Maybe it's a passage of scripture you are studying or a challenge that you're facing in your life or ministry and you want biblical counsel. If we can help by God's grace, we will do the best we can. Uh, You can reach us, as Rick just shared, several ways. Call us direct, 843-525-1859, 525-1859, the 843 South Carolina Exchange. Or you can email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is TBL. That stands for The Bible, the Bible Line, TBL at WAGP.net. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply uh, dictate your question. We're happy to receive it that way. So I, however you'd like to give it to us, we do give uh, priority to live callers, and so um, we'll take them in that order. So let's go ahead and we'll kick off, Rick, this morning. Indeed, Pastor. We've got a number of questions that have come in, so let's go to them right now. Um, uh, Leading things off, uh, you discussed the names of Satan in a recent sermon on Revelation uh, 20, serpent of old, the dragon, the devil, etc., and it got this listener thinking of Satan being described like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour in 1 Peter 5. Could you talk about that a little bit, specifically as it relates to Christ being called the Lion of, lion of Judah? It seems conflicting for them to be described by the same term, if that makes sense. Well, not necessarily. A lot depends on you know context and how an author is using the metaphor, in this case, out of a roaring lion. Obviously, he's not a literally, literally a, a roaring lion, but it's one of the metaphors that God uses to help us to understand his personality. Let me read First Peter uh, chapter 5 and verse 8. It says, Be of sober, and the assumption there is spirit contextually. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So he's given us some real sound advice here. To, well, we've got a live caller, so we'll come back to this. We always give priority, and since I hadn't gotten too far into the call, I mean into this question, let's go to the live caller. All right, very good. Thanks for holding, caller. You are on the Bible line. Thank you, Pastor, for taking my call. Yes, happy to, um, my brother. What can we do to help today? Was, yes, sir. I was reading uh, some some headline news yesterday, and I caught the story about Joshua Harris. Yes. The uh, author of Kiss Dating Goodbye. Yes. And, uh, I, I've seen that book in, in Christian bookstores. I've never read it. Uh, I heard about how he, according to that story, uh, no longer considers himself a Christian. Now, that was heartbreaking to hear, but even more sorrow to me was I didn't know this guy was a pastor. Right. And uh, I was just wondering if you could maybe 
help me process what happens with a guy like that? And do you know of what type of methodology with his teaching that may have been red flagged for his congregation? And I'll just hang up and listen. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate it. It's just a, uh, a fantastic question that you're asking here. Um, I got a text message from uh, a brother yesterday, and he said, I'm guessing, I just opened it up here on my phone, you've probably seen the disturbing news of Josh Harris's announcement of his divorce from his wife and denouncement of the faith. It says he's no longer a Christian and has never been happier. If I'm reading the tea leaves correctly, quote-unquote, the next announcement will be that he is gay. Uh, he has apologized profusely to the LGBTQ plus plus movement groups in conjunction with uh, this announcement while praising a lesbian singer and gay rights activist for her great example. And that's all online. This is all public stuff. He was the head pastor of Covenant Life Church in Maryland, where we were members for a few years. Lots of anger out there, but even more confusion, especially from his former flock, about how something like this could even happen. I wonder if it could be a sermon topic soon. Um, So it was a great question coming from a former member. This former member actually called me several years ago and told me he was in this church and asked what I thought, and I said, I don't think you should go there. Um, It had kind of a charismatic flair, people speaking in tongues along with other things. Uh, C.J. Mahaney's somewhat of a controversial kind of fella, and Josh Harris stepped up in his place to take over. But I said, look, you you don't want that mixed message theology being uh, given to your children as you're raising them in the home and you're trying to steer them correctly. So my suggestion was just to leave the church Um, But how can it happen? How does it happen? Well, of course, God prophesies that these very things will happen, especially in the last days um, and in latter times. Uh, The term last days is used uh, to refer in the Old Testament sometimes to the very end of time. In the New Testament, it is used to refer to that time frame that began on the day of Pentecost since the Bible uh, teaches the imminent return of Christ, that nothing prophetically has to be fulfilled for Jesus to come back, that he could have come back a week after Pentecost if he wanted. And so in that sense, Peter can stand up on the day of Pentecost and say, we're in the last days. This is what the prophet Joel said would happen in the last days. Peter believed in imminency. Uh, There are some people who believe in a post-tribulational rapture, so they think there are certain prophecies that have to happen before Jesus can come back. Nothing has to happen for him to come back for his church. Much has to happen for him to come back uh, to the earth at his second coming. And so when you see the term latter days, that is a term exclusively used in the Old Testament and in the New Testament to refer to that time frame right before Messiah comes back. The Spirit explicitly says, Paul writes to Timothy, that in latter times, latter days, latter times, same phraseology used in the Old Testament to refer to that time frame before Messiah comes, some will fall away from the faith. So he is speaking of the faith, not just of faith, but the faith, it's articular. That is this body of truth that we call the Bible. 
And so um, the scripture will go on to admonish Timothy in pointing out these things to the brethren. You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. So he's helping him to actually guard the church of false teachers. And false teachers come into the church. That was Jesus's warning in Matthew 7. We often use, you know, the phrase, well, you'll know them by their fruits. And we apply it to Joe Schmo, who lives a lifestyle contrary to what the scriptures teach. And we say, well, he's an unbeliever. And that's a, legi- a legitimate application of the passage. But contextually, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is warning his people of false teachers who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They look and walk and talk like they're believers, but they are really not. And time is always the best test. And Joshua Harris unfortunately proved that he was one of those false teachers. Now, the book he created, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, was actually a decent book. Um, He was raised in a godly home. Uh, His father, um, Greg Harris, was a leader in the home education movement. His mother was a very godly woman, and she's raised some great kids. But this particular one went south, and all that was precipitated behind it, I don't know. But I don't think he was qualified, one, to be a pastor to start. He had had really very little, he had no formal theological training. Not that that necessarily is a prerequisite for a man to be a pastor. But very often, if a man hasn't dedicated himself to some specific course of study in which to prepare himself so that he represents sound doctrine, then he's not qualified to be a pastor. And to me, for him to take a church, you know, with some of these charismatic gifts, as they're called, obviously we're all charismatics, and that we believe God gives spiritual gifts, immediately indicates that uh, there were some issues in terms of his qualifications. So one, I don't think he was qualified to be a pastor from the start. But you see, if you're putting a lot of emphasis on emotion and feeling, which that church had been doing under the leadership of his former pastor, who was definitely a believer— but I think he had some wacko views on the charismatic gifts. I don't think speaking in tongues as the charismatic movement is expressing it today represents the biblical fashion in which people speak in tongues. Those, those brothers are just wrong. I don't know. I, I'm not trying to be unkind. They're, they're just wrong. They've been deceived. And so for him to walk into a church that already predicates itself on putting a lot of emphasis on experience and emotion right off tells you that he's not that sound in his own way of thinking. And unfortunately, time proved it. But because he was raised in a godly home, the, the, the basic thesis of the book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, was that, you know, you shouldn't uh, just have multiple dates with different women all the time. And, and, and of course, guarding yourself in the um, physical realm to express moral purity. So there were some really good principles there um, in his suggestion, and no doubt through the influence of his parents, was that they, you know, said, go slow. You know, why date a girl that you know, say, is not potentially a candidate? You say, well, I've got to get to know her. Well, that's true. So their suggestion was, you know, try to get to know someone, not in the 
uh, modern dating kind of approach, but maybe a little slower in group settings, uh, families being invited over, and just to take it a little slower to assess the situation. So he said a lot of good things in the book. Uh, there was there was a few things there that I remember reading the book. And, uh, you know, he had this dream, and it just seemed too fake. Um, like he had this dream, and all these things were taught to him. So there was the emotional thing coming out um, right there. But the principles in terms of moral purity, and so he made a ton of money. He, he became a very wealthy man off of that book. And in that sense, he kind of milked the evangelical Christians that now he's making fun of and mocking. First John 2.19 would say that he is, was never saved. Now, some of my Pentecostal charismatic friends would say he lost his salvation, but he didn't lose it. You can't lose something you've never had. Children, it's the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, that is that one world leader, even now many Antichrists have appeared from this we know it is the last hour. So John uses the phraseology last hour the same way last days is used in other places in the New Testament. The spirit of Antichrist, which Jesus said would happen beginning with Pentecost, just as his people would go out and sow true seed, the evil one would go out and sow false seed. And so in that sense, there were many, many Antichrists, not the Antichrist, but many false uh, people who are supplanting the true message. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it might be shown that they all are not of us. In other words, if they were true believers, they would have persevered. Jesus uses that as an illustration in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, that the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. He is not teaching salvation by works, salvation by perseverance, but he is saying that if a person is genuinely saved, they will persevere. And of course, again, contextually, he's dealing with that future time frame, the last seven years in human history, when life will be extremely difficult, especially for those who name the name of Christ. And there will come a point when if you do not ascribe to Antichrist and his teaching, you will be murdered, you will be beheaded. And that time frame will come after the rapture of the church. And so Jesus is saying true Christians in the light of intense persecution will not deny and renounce Jesus as Lord. So if you have it, you can't lose it. If you lost it, you never really had it to begin with. So yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of heartache and like questioning. And and that's why these people need sound doctrine in that church. And even um, Michael Ferris, who started the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, he wrote a letter. It's on his website, uh, Michael Ferris, and he's a good brother, real solid brother. Uh, Started the HSLDA with a view towards protecting the legal rights of those who chose the home education option to be protected and to provide, you know, legal care. Um, He wrote a great letter, I thought, to Joshua, whom he's known And he did it publicly because this is all in a public format, what Joshua is coming out to say. Now, whether he comes out gay is, I don't know. But, you know, there's a moral problem going on in Joshua's life. That's what's driving this. It's always driving it. There is some moral issue. And he claimed when he stepped into that pulpit years ago 
that he had been molested as a child. Now, that would be a red flag for me, not a disqualifying flag, but a red flag because very often people who have been molested as children, if they are not able to work through that process as a born-again person, then there will come a point where Satan will use that. And again, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, so it's no excuse But there will come a point where Satan will use that, where if they don't really find God's forgiveness, then that sense of shame sometimes is acted on to justify the shame they feel because they're dealing with their sin, not their sin when they're a victim, but they're dealing with their problem in a less than biblical way. So um, that would have been a red flag for me. Add to that that he was walking into a church that was highly rooted in emotionalism. Add to that he had no formal theological training. Add to that he was not really an expositor of God's Word where he could teach sound doctrine to these people. And now I guarantee you got a confusion in that church like they've never seen in a lot of heartache and a lot of people who don't really even have answers right now because they've not been taught well. So it's a very sad thing, Uh, but these things Jesus said would happen, and a lot of it is happening. You know, we have a Jen Hatmaker who, you know, espoused gay marriage, and there she was on Lifeway Books for years and years, and she made millions. And her theology was shaky. But, you know, these Christian publishers don't want to take people off who are making money for them. Tyndale House, when they had that kid who supposedly at the age of four, died, and he goes to heaven. He comes back and reports what heaven is like. And another one who wrote another book on another press, and that happened to him when he was six, and now he found Christ as like an 18-year-old, and he's come back and said none of it ever happened. You know, this is adding to it. A Beth Moore, when she has her visions and dreams and God said, Beth, da, 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 like she's getting these emails from God and text messages right into her head. You know, the same thing with uh, Jesus calling and all these weird books. This is the bad doctrine of our day, and this leads to apostates, and we'll see more of it, and there's a lot that's going down in our day in evangelicalism. Good question. Let's go to the next. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, we've got another live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. I have a question from the good book. I, yes, sir. I read it a lot. Yes, good morning. Yeah, go ahead with your question. I'm I'm listening to you. Uh, what was I your... have a question from from a good book, the Holy Bible. I'm I'm confused. Where it's in Jeremiah 31, verse 33 and 34, it says they will they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. It also says that in Hebrews eight eleven. That's right. Uh, Romans ten eighteen. Yes. Psalms nineteen three and four. So I, I guess my puzzlement and my question is how how can anyone not know when the Bible says they all do know in the, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament? Well, this is a great question. Um, can Can I ask you a personal question? Just to give me some context of your question, um, if you were to put yourself on a scale of zero to 100, zero, I have no idea at all, and 100, I have no doubt at all, how certain would you say, oh, we lost them, too bad. You're welcome to he call went, back he went, if you want. He went ahead and hung up. I know this guy's a solid Christian. Oh, he is. He so is. you know him already. Right. He's in my Sunday school class. Oh, okay. Well, in either case, um, let me answer his question. 
the context is everything. This passage, along with the uh, parallel text in the prophet Ezekiel, the 36th chapter, is, um, dis- is describing a future time in Israel's history. It's what we call the new covenant. Days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. With who? With the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So he is preaching at a time in biblical history where the kingdom is split. The 10 northern tribes that were called Israel at this point, one time they were all called Israel, and the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, after the larger of the two. So he's uh, preaching about a new covenant that God is going to make with all of Israel, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. And, of course, all you have to do is read the Torah, and you discover that there is a habitual breaking and inconsistency of faithfulness towards God's law. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel. Again, he's talking about Jews after those days. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So he's describing a new kind of relationship that the people of Israel would have with um, with the Messiah uh, because of a new covenant that God was going to institute. It hadn't been instituted yet. It was prophesied in the Old Testament. Ezekiel uses the language, uh, it's beautiful, that God would take their heart of stone and he would give them a heart of flesh. So that's why, by the way, there are some things that under the Old Covenant— a person could do and still be considered a true believer, where under the new covenant they wouldn't be considered a believer at all because they had not yet received in the truest sense the Spirit of God in the way a new covenant believer would. Even John, who had a unique relationship with the Holy Spirit, Jesus said the one who's no one who's ever born of a woman was, was greater than John, but the one who's least in the kingdom of God will be greater than John. Why? Because John never lived to see the day of Pentecost. And so even the most lowly believer, so to speak, inconsistent believer in comparison to John, who was a great man of God, um, would be greater than John in the sense that he would have greater privileges and blessings that John never saw. Because the new covenant, Jesus at the Lord table, he calls it the new covenant. This is the new covenant that's going to be enacted with my blood. And so there at the Last Supper, he reminds them and he institutes for us one of two ordinances in the New Testament, that when we come to the Lord's table, we are remembering what it cost God to initiate this new covenant. So in the truest sense, the the, the blessing of the new covenant that God prophesied of did not happen until the day of Pentecost, but it couldn't happen until Jesus was dead and was raised to life because sin had to be paid for in time and space. The, the sacrifices of the Old Testament system never removed sin in a permanent way. They were just symbolic of what God was going to accomplish through the Messiah. And so Jeremiah, like Ezekiel, is looking down the carters of time to a future date. Now, yes, you mentioned it's it's quoted in the book of Hebrews, and rightly so, because right now you can read about it in Hebrews chapter 8, and I've preached through the book of Hebrews, so you can listen to my message if this would be of help to this caller um, to understand how this passage integrates with Jeremiah 31, but to 
just to give you a quick snippet, uh, as Gentiles, we have been grafted in. It's not Israel who's been grafted into the Gentiles, but the Gentiles have been grafted into Israel because of their unbelief in the interim and in the church age, God is allowing the nations of the world and those few Jews that are believers to experience the benefits that God had promised to the nation of Israel. Overall, the nation of Israel, millions of them rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Now, some debate exactly how many Jews became Christians. You can safely say at least 30,000. It might have been 200,000. I don't know. Um, But uh, overall, the leadership of Israel and the people of Israel rejected Jesus because they did not want the kind of Savior that he was offering himself at. They didn't want that kind of Messiah. They wanted one who would crush Rome and put them in a predominant position again. And so Jeremiah, like Ezekiel, is looking down the carters of time. When is this going to be fulfilled? It's going to be fulfilled, Jeremiah will say, during the time of Jacob's trouble. We call that in the New Testament the Great Tribulation. And so one of the chief purposes after the church is removed of the tribulation is to bring Israel to faith. And you see that in Revelation 7, 144,000 Jews who become evangelists to the world. Right now, it's the Gentile who's preaching to the world. It's going to all change during the time of the tribulation. The Jewish people will be on top, and they will be presenting the gospel to the world during that time, and they will see the fulfillment. And so um, he says, therefore, they shall not teach again each man his brother and each man his neighbor, saying, know the Lord. Why? Because they'll all know me. You see, there was only a select group of people who had a special relationship with the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And if you take my course on pneumatology, one of the sections in the course is the role of the Spirit. Pneumatos is the Greek word for spirit. And so pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit. And so we go through the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, and there's only at best, and this might be generous, but at best there's only about 500 individuals in the Old Testament who had a special relationship with the Holy Spirit. And in that sense, they could know some of the things of God that the average Joe couldn't know, and so they could point people and encourage people. But even those people, like a John the Baptist, who would fit into that realm because he was an Old Testament believer. You say, but he was alive during the time of Christ. Yeah, but he never lived to the New Testament, to the New Covenant. The word testament and covenant, those are synonyms. The New Deal, John never saw because he never lived to Pentecost. And so even guys like John did not see the full uh, enablement of the Spirit. So Jesus can say to his disciples that um, the Spirit has been with you, but not many days from now he's going to be in you. That's a whole new relationship. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, and he will be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I'll not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So he'd been with them, but he was going to be in them. That's the new covenant blessing where King David, after he commits the sin of adultery in his great confessional prayer in Psalm 51, he says, Lord, take not your Holy Spirit from me. That's an old covenant prayer. 
And of course, he had seen the Spirit of God depart from Saul as God's anointed. And he feared that because of the sin that he had committed, that he would lose the Spirit of God. That's an impossibility under the New Covenant, again, because we have a different relationship to the Spirit than any Old Testament believer. When you hear the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, Paul will write in Ephesians 1, you're sealed with the Spirit. How long are we sealed? He'll say in Ephesians 4, unto the day of redemption. So he is God's earnest, God's guarantee, God's down payment that the work that has been started. And so in that sense, we can know the Lord. And those few who could point to people to know the Lord, all of them are going to know. It's not just going to be the Moseses and the John the Baptists that are going to have a relationship with the Spirit. Everyone is uh, who's a true believer in Jesus Christ, and that's the promise. Anyway, that's the short answer, believe it or not, but you might want to listen to my message on Hebrews chapter 8, and I think you'll find that helpful. Go ahead. Let's go to the next question. All right. Well, let's go back to that very, very first question we had regarding Matthew 2750. Well, actually, this is um, regarding your sermon in uh, Revelation 20, where you had different names for the devil. It uh, got this person wondering, since 1 Peter 5 also refers to Christ as, uh, or rather talks about the devil as uh, being a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And then elsewhere in the Bible, it calls Christ the Lion of Judah. Uh, They're confused about that terminology. Well, 1 Peter 5, 8 that you're referencing, be of sober spirit, be on the alert, your adversary the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So Peter has given us just some sound advice, and we would do well to heed this in our day, that we need to be sober, we need to be mentally alert, self-controlled in the way we think about the devil. He's called our adversary. And it's a Greek word that was used in the legal realm that literally meant an opponent at law. And uh, he opposes you. He, he hates you. And by the way, there is one person you can hate and be right in the will of God, and that's the devil. Uh, you don't have to love him as your enemy. God gives us permission to hate him because he hates you, and he wants to destroy you. Now, the word devil, I think I brought this out of my sermon, uh, diabolos. It's a Greek—we get our word diabolic from it in English— but it's a Greek word that literally means to accuse, to defame, to slander. He's the great slander, and one of his evil ministries is he is habitually slandering God's people uh, before the Lord. But here he's described, too, as uh, a roaring lion. And a lion, you know, has a howl. I was in a zoo once when I was a little child, and the first time I ever heard a lion roar, I about jumped out of my skin. Uh, He just let one go, and it was kind of frightening. Well, in one sense, Satan is a lion who may roar, but for the believer, we know he's been defanged. Colossians 2.15 says, by the blood of the cross, God overcame him. And yet the the sound of his roar can be deceptive, and he roars with uh, temptation and blasphemies against God and accusations against God's people. So we need to respect him, but it's much like a lion in the zoo. As long as you don't put your arm in the cage, you have nothing to worry about no matter how much he screams. But if you get in that cage, you're doomed. You are in for big, 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 big trouble. Well, Satan, as a servant, will try to deceive you. As an adversary, he'll try to defame you and accuse you. As a roaring lion, he he wants to devour and to destroy you. 
And so he has power, but only that power that you allow him to have. And so he's a real legitimate adversary. And so we need to be sober and we blame a lot too on the devil where he can't take credit for, well, the devil made me do it as Flip Wilson used to say, well, the devil didn't make you do that much at all. Much of our sin is we're just carried away by our own fallen lust. Now he may uh, work through the world system. The scripture says that he's energizing to tempt you, but we need to resist him. So to get to the context of your question, it is true that the lion of the tribe of Judah, a term that is used in the Old Testament, God, by the way, God the Father in Isaiah 31 is likened to a lion. But there we're seeing God as a lion in his wrath, and his just wrath, whereas the metaphor in reference to Satan as a lion is used in a destructive way to bring down God's people to destroy good people. So we need to uh, put it in context. So it's just the same metaphor used in a different context in a different way. Satan is destructive. He hates God's people, wants to tear them down. He can't cause you to lose your salvation. Someone asked last week, well, if I'm saved and eternally secure, why do I need to worry about the devil? Why would he even bother me if uh, he can't take me to hell with him? Well, the next best thing, if he can't take you to hell, is to slow down your growth. Because if you're a growing, vibrant Christian, then you are a real threat to the kingdom of God. I tell young pastors, I talk to pastors all the time, and they call me, and they listen in different states, and, hey, will Dr. Brogy call me? And of course I will. And anything I can do to try to help some of these men whom God has called. And I remind them, I said, listen, there's a, there's a bullseye painted on your back. If Satan takes down some man in your church, it will be bad, but it won't be like, uh, you know, disastrous to the local assembly. But here we've seen this guy, Josh Harris, who wasn't even a Christian, and now he's totally denied the faith. You see, that faith, that church was not alert. That's the book of Jude. Jude warns of local churches that sometimes they let in the door. The people do. Folks, again, who are not qualified for ministry, and this is why the qualifications for ministry become so important, because if they had just looked at the qualifications for ministry as they're outlined in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3, if they were astute enough theologically and sound enough biblically, they never would have called him to be a pastor. But they didn't, obviously, and that's why they called him. And so the Bible warns, he says, Beloved, I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation. I was going to write a book of Romans, he thought. I felt the necessity, however, to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. Why? Because certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand mocked out for condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. That's Josh Harris. He's taking God's grace and the things that God calls holy, he now calls evil. And by the way, his wife did the same thing. And she's a wild woman now as she describes herself. You know, and my heartbreak is for these children, you know, for their kids. And I just, you know, I just, it's very, very sad. So, you know, pray for Josh. He needs to find Christ. He's never known the Lord. 
Jesus will say to those false teachers, I never knew you, not I once knew you, but I never knew you. You never had the Jeremiah 31 relationship that that caller just asked about, that intimate relationship. They turned the grace of God into licentiousness, and so that now he's waving the LGBTQ flag. I don't know if it's because he's gay or if he's living an immoral heterosexual lifestyle. And, and again, when people are living immorally sexually, whether having extramarital sex or whatever, then they're going to wave the LGBTQ flag as well, whether or not they're gay, because, you know, sin loves company. Sin loves to be an evangelist for other sins, Romans one thirty two, And so now he's denied our only Lord and Master. So I tell these guys, look, there's an arrow. I mean, there's a target painted on your back, and if Satan can bring you down, he will. Uh, because if a pastor goes down, let's just say for the sake of argument that Josh was a true believer, and now he and, he and he confessed, well, I've had a problem with sexual immorality, and I have to step out of the pulpit. That would have been disastrous for the church all by itself, and far more disastrous if just a, a regular member had fallen. And Satan knows that. Uh, but here, it, that was not the situation. Here was a church that was unguarded, who let an unbeliever into the pulpit. And again, this is why the leadership qualifications in the New Testament are so important. And if they had been taught well enough, but you're not going to be taught well in an emotionally bent, charismatic church. Emotionalism, that's the key to spirituality. Whereas sound doctrine uh, guiding your emotions, well, that takes a back seat because we want you to come to church to feel good and to have some kind of an experience, not to be taught. And that's why we're seeing this um, this stuff going down. We're talking about it in staff meeting this morning. You know, Beth Moore, she's made Lifeway Books millions of dollars. She's a wacko. She's a total wacko. I don't have anything against her, you know, personally as a woman, but she's a wacko in the things that she's teaching, and most evangelical women love her. They don't see that she's, you know, getting these direct revelations from God and all this other things. There are some other people you're going to see go down here before long, and it's very sad. But I think we are seeing what God said would happen in latter times. At the end of time, we are witnessing it. All right, very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question, as this person dictated theirs, uh, they were reading in Matthew twenty-seven fifty where it says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then for the rest of Matthew, it's addressing the resurrection. The caller would like to know if the resurrection happened when Jesus took his last breath, or was he resurrected in the tomb when the tombstone was rolled away? Ah, great question, and it's a difference between liberal apostate theology, and true biblical theology. Now, when Jesus yielded up his spirit here in Matthew 27, let me just turn there. Um, It's an interesting passage. It said, and he cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Remember, Jesus said, no one will take my life away from me. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it back up. And you see this in the way he died and the fact that he was physically resurrected from the dead. When he was arrested, a multitude came, according to Mark's gospel. 
Matthew says a great multitude came. John says a Roman battalion came, a Roman battalion led by a Chiliarchus. It's the Greek word for a thousand. We get our word Chiliism. So sometimes we speak of the Chiliistic reign of Christ. That's the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. A leader of a thousand men came. Now, wonder John said a great multitude, because this is a lot of people who are coming to arrest him, and he gave them permission to arrest him. He put them all on their backs, John tells us. Whom do you seek? Jesus and Nazarene. I am, and they all fell backwards. Now, Jesus could have said while they're on the ground, okay, men, we're leaving. Uh, we'll leave these guys here. No, he permitted them to get back on their feet, and he then asks them a second time, and he gives permission for them to take him only and not to touch the other apostles. And this army honors that, this small army. Why? Because they know Jesus is an unusual person and that really he is the one who's displayed authority here. No one will take my life. I have authority to lay it down. And even at the moment of death, he yielded his spirit. They didn't have to come and break his legs to induce death as they did with the other two thieves. He yielded his spirit to the Father at just the right time. Sin had been paid for. That separation that we should know as finite people for an eternity, Christ is an infinite person, during that finite period of time paid in full our debt. And of course, too, it was to fulfill other prophecy. Had Jesus not yielded his spirit and the Jews had come and said, okay, you know, we want these bodies off the crosses before a high and holy Sabbath, then they would have broken his legs. But remember, in the Passover typology, when the Jews ate the Passover lamb, they could not break a single bone. That was one of the images that was a symbolic of the Messiah, just like the lamb that they used in a Passover um, Seder could not just be any kind of lamb. It had to be one without spot or blemish. And so they would bring from Bethlehem the lambs into the city of Jerusalem on Sunday, and they would inspect them during the week. And only perfect animals, none with scabs or broken legs or, you know, skin problems or could be used. Only perfect lambs. That's what God dictated. Not by accident that Messiah enters Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday, and uh, he's inspected all week long by the Herodians and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and so forth, and, and they couldn't find any guilt in him. And he offers himself and then gives his spirit up at just the right time. Is that the resurrection? No, not at all. That's not the resurrection. That's Christ yielding his spirit to the Father. But then he will rise from the dead. And Jesus cried out with a loud spirit and yielded up his spirit. And so that happened on Friday before the Passover began. And so that was day one. He was in the tomb Friday night to Saturday night. That's day two. And then on the third day, as Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 15, he was raised from the dead. So he cries out with a loud spirit, yields up his spirit, with a loud voice, yields up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple torn in two, not from bottom to top, because man's not tearing it. It's from top to bottom. God's tearing it. And the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. When? 
and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. So, again, this is in keeping with another Old Testament feast, the Feast of First Fruits. And so Jesus was not raised from the dead at that moment. He yielded up his spirit, but then he gives us a little insight as to what is going to happen over the next couple of days, and then he elucidates that insight in Matthew 28. Now, the liberal theologian says, well, Jesus, you know, he just um, was spiritually raised from the dead. He gave up his spirit, but he didn't bodily, physically, actually come out of the grave. That's heresy. Uh, The Bible is very clear. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave, and behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone upon it. They're concerned, who's going to move the stone? And um, God makes it very clear that he is going to move it, not to let Christ out. He was already risen, but to let them in. And, of course, when it happens, the guards shook with fear. They became like dead men. The angels said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He's not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And, of course, later that day he appears. Not only does he appear to the women, Mary Magdalene is the first, and then some other women. They fall at his feet, and they worship him, Uh, and he receives that worship. To worship anyone other than God is sheer blasphemy. So when Jehovah's Witness try to convince you that they believe what you believe about Jesus, they use the same words but a different dictionary to define those words, you just ask them, do you worship Jesus? And they'll tell you, no, no, we don't worship Jesus. Then you don't embrace the same Jesus that I embrace, Because in the Bible, they worship Jesus. When someone fell at Peter's feet and someone at Paul's feet and Barnabas's, they tore their robes. We're just men. Don't worship us. But Jesus receives worship, and in the Revelation, all of heaven is worshiping the Lamb who's on the throne. Because he's more than a man, he's God, and the resurrection was God's announcement or his declaration Romans 1, 4, that he is Lord, but he physically, literally, and so later that day in the upper room, here, come, feel my hands. This is not a spirit. Um, Touch my nail scars and so forth, uh, because um, he literally came out of the grave, and he physically, literally ascended to heaven from the Mount of Olives, and he will physically, literally Acts 1, Zechariah 14, come back to the earth, Matthew 24, so on, uh, to judge the living and the dead. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right. Very good. Another listener would like to know, is it biblical for a Christian who is not a pastor to baptize a new believer? Well, it's a local church ordinance. And so here's the thing is you want to encourage obedience, And so when a person becomes a believer, he is to become a member of a Bible-believing church. Because he's become a member of the universal church, the body of Christ, he is to become a member of a Bible-believing church. And very often, people who have attempted to baptize um, new believers who have no pastoral uh, call from God are baptizing unbelievers. They may mean well, but they are not really executing a biblical pattern. And so, number one, sometimes they do this, and they just leave them out there. 
you know, when they should be thinking, no, if this person is brand new in Christ, then I need to bring them into the local assembly. So it's a local church ordinance. Now, it might be that in that local church that the uh, pastoral leadership would allow a believer to, um, in his place, uh, baptize someone else. But generally, they don't do that because they want to personally review uh, the uh, testimony of this new believer because baptism is conditioned on genuine faith. And to me, it's just, we had a couple join our church about a year ago, and they said, oh, yeah, our daughter here is 14, and uh, she just got baptized when we did, and um, and here's our son, and he's eight, and we want to get him baptized, and he hasn't been baptized yet. So I asked the diagnostic questions when I met this family in my office, and the 14-year-old Oh, I'm 75% sure. What would you have to do to be 100? Well, I just need to read my Bible more and be more faithful and just a better Christian. Why did that pastor baptize this 14-year-old just a few months before they moved here? They were new. Now, as it turns out, the parents were genuine believers, but they didn't check this guy out, this young lady out. And so he baptized an unbeliever. Had he just asked a couple of questions, he would have soon discovered that this child did not yet understand. I was interfacing with a family on Sunday night, very similar situation. And, oh, our younger kids want to be baptized, and um, and our, our and our daughter does too. And the daughter who is the oldest, I asked her the diagnostic questions. I said, well, is she a Christian? Oh, yeah, she's a Christian. I asked her the diagnostic question. No, clearly not. Um, going out of the church on Sunday morning, uh, one African lady came, African American lady came up to me with two, her two children. Oh, they're both Christians. They're both interested in being baptized. So I just asked them the diagnostic questions right there in the hallway. Uh, were they saved? No. And mom could see they weren't saved, that they did not yet understand the gospel. So what you end up doing is you do a disservice, A, if you baptize an unbeliever. That's why those who are sound in doctrine, because sometimes, you know, if a parent asks a child a question a certain way, they can get the right answer. And then a pastor can ask the same question a different way and get the wrong answer. What does that tell you? It tells you that they don't understand the gospel. Does understanding precede conversion? Yes. You don't have to be a great scholar or theologian to understand the gospel. A child can get it. But you do have to know that salvation is not earned or merited and by works. And on the basis of the death and resurrection of Christ, we can be assured when we trust and believe what God promises. And if we don't trust and believe what God promises, then salvation in the human heart has not yet occurred. And so you do a disservice when you baptize an unbeliever. And if you baptize them and you're not really pointing them to a local church, then you're doing them a disservice. And because you're not helping them to take the first steps of obedience, you don't want to leave the new believer out there uncared for and unshepherded. Just as a baby is born physically and they're brought into the home and they're loved and cared for and fed and nurtured, when we're born again, we're to be brought into a church home. And that's why the New Testament knows nothing of Christians who are not a part of a New Testament local church. And I'm sure there's people listening to me today, and they say, well, you know, I go to a Bible study, and that's my fellowship. That's not New Testament fellowship. 
in the in the uh, sense of being a part of a local assembly. God calls every believer to be a part of a Bible-believing local assembly. Let's go to the next question. Okay, I think we have time for one more. Another ecclesiological question, if there's such a word. Is it wrong for a church to not pass the offering plate, but to have a box in the back of the church where you can put your offering? I was just in a church a couple of months ago when I was in Texas watching, um, or welcoming, I should say, our our latest grandson into the world. And uh, I went to church that morning at a large Bible church, and and that's what they had. They had a, a box in the back of the church. And the thought behind it is, you know, these these unbelievers have been beaten down about giving money and, you know, and they get the wrong impression, especially during the 1980s when all the uh, televangelist scandals took place. That's when this new kind of swing took place in some evangelical churches. Oh, we want to downplay money and and we want to, uh, you know, really not even talk about it. We'll just put this box in the back of the church, and if someone wants to give, they can give there. I think that does a great disservice to God's people. And I, it's part of the worship service. Uh, on the first day of the week when you gather together, you bring an offering, and you bring an, you bring an, a portion of what God has increased in your life. And we don't have to apologize for money. And when money's being handled biblically, and any member ought to be able to know, well, where's all the money going? And if a church won't tell you and they have something to hide, then that's not good. But if money is being handled in a biblical way and people are being encouraged to give biblically, I mean, that, that again, downplays that we have a responsibility to give, and that's part of the growth process. And it's not by accident that Jesus said as much as he did on giving half of his parables are money related. And it's not by accident because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So we need to teach the standard and we should not let abusive things become a showstopper like the scandals that took place through the televangelist movement for them to dictate what we should do on the Lord's day. So I wouldn't say it's sinful, but, you know, to downplay the Christian's responsibility on the first day of the week where there's no mention and there's no offering. Now, I suppose you could say, um, well, you know, we're glad you're here today. And as you leave, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, there'll be an opportunity for you to um, put your tithes and offerings in the box at the back of the church. That wouldn't necessarily be sinful. Um, but in this church, like most of the churches, money's never even mentioned, and that's bad. That's really, really bad. That's less than biblical and less than sound in the approach that they're taking. Anyway, a lot of questions still that came in we didn't get to, but God willing, there'll be another Tuesday next week, and we will be back. Lord bless you as you walk with Jesus Christ this week. <laughs> 